Welcome to the new episode of Entertainment Geekly, your guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, mysterious, British, and mysteriously British. I'm Darren Franich, and calling in from the Mind Palace, where he keeps all the Earth's secrets for blackmail purposes, it's EW's Jeff Jensen. Jeff, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Keep it in line. Stay <laughs> Keep it in line. I have all the dirt on you. I know all about that CIA past of yours. You could you could make a phone call to to, to fifteen different people right now who who, who want my head. Uh, Jeff, uh, we are of course making some reference to the season finale of Sherlock. It, it almost sounds weird calling it a season finale when the season in question is only three sort of oversized episodes. Um, but uh, it happened last week. We've been sort of digesting it. Uh, you in particular wrote a piece on EW.com discussing uh, what happened at the end of the episode. We'll get to that in a second. But before we dive straight into spoilers, I wanted to ask you just more generally um, what you thought about this season of Sherlock. You know, this was, it'd been two years since the last season. In that time, it's very clear that the fandom had percolated and uh, grown and done other chemical things that I don't really have the, the vocabulary for. And, and, and this season seemed very aware of it. Uh, in your piece, you sort of pointed out that this was a very meta season of Sherlock. So how did, how did it sit with you just in general, these sort of three 90-minute uh, Sherlock experiences? Well, as a set of three, as a, if, if you take the three 90-minute movies and, um, and, 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 and kind of view it as a four-and-a-half-hour experience, um, I think it's actually you know, it's very entertaining. Um, it's very consistent in its theme. It really kind of latches on to the the friendship of of, of Holmes and Watson, and uh, the, the the bromance, if you will, the sort of like you know wink wink John Locke uh, ship, shipperness of it all, um, and and really kind of builds it out into this really kind of like action packed romantic comedy, if you will, between these two friends. And I, I thought it was very entertaining um, uh, almost every step of the way. Um, I, I love the wit. I love the scenes. I love the sort of like the very right performances. I, I, I do like their chemistry. Um, I, am, I, I was a particular fan of, of, of the second movie, um, um, I love just the intricacies of the storytelling and the stories within the stories that happen within the toast that Sherlock gave to to to, 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 to Watson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, that was the episode where it, it was all just literally the, the the main sort of engine was Sherlock is giving the toast at Watson's wedding, and through that, just there was these incredible sort of like tangents, and you know. He'd have like some runs where, where he would just describe a couple of their cases very quickly, and then suddenly you'd jump fully into a case. It, it almost seemed like, you know, what I, what I love about their uh, their format is they can really sort of shake up how they tell stories. And I, I sort of loved the sense that you know we were sort of seeing an entire season of a different version of Sherlock played out in that episode. I I, I, I did think that that was really sort of exciting, and it felt to me like. 
uh, you know, Sherlock, of course, comes from, uh, uh, it's co-created by Stephen Moffat, who also has uh, really risen to prominence as the showrunner of Doctor Who. And it really felt like, you know, Moffat has this style of storytelling that is very like that, that is, you know, we're going to jump back in time and forward in time, and, you know, we're going to just, you know, we're, we're going to almost kind of rewrite the playbook of how the three-act structure works by creating ten acts, which we, you know, we start at Act 9 and then jump back to Act 1. And I liked how he seemed very confident this season of pushing that even more so, which which I thought was 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 pretty exciting. What do you um, was there anything? Did the sort of meta ness of this season did that bother you? Was that something that you felt did they too much? Did they did they do too much of that? Like just because especially the first episode, it felt like it was in direct conversation with the the Sherlock fandom, the Sherlock theorists, you know, all all, all that stuff. I do. I, I did think it got a little bit in the way, and, and it was a little too much. You know, I, I, I typically enjoy that and um, uh, that kind of wink-wink stuff. And um, and it, it wasn't that it was bad or that I, 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 I didn't like it, but, you know, I, I, I did reflect a lot while watching this season of Sherlock that I, I do like the, the, the feeling of, like, getting – three solid contained stories that give you a mystery from beginning to end. And um, while we, we got some of that and, 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 and Sherlock admirably played with that form um, this year, I, I, I missed not getting, you know, I missed them not sort of working out their character stuff and having fun within this sort of like context context and construct of, of, of the quote-unquote typical Sherlock episode. Um, and I hope that they m- might get back to that um, next season. Yeah, that first episode, it was just so, you know, it was so winky, although it, 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 it made for great moments. Um, it reminded me of American Horror Story Coven in that way this season, where I feel like, uh, that was a that was a kind of storytelling this year that was always good for creating really entertaining scenes um, and uh, you know and, and and you know from the writing from the acting and, and all that really great scenes but um, but didn't necessarily always add up to a great story that 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 first movie in particular I mean I loved the whole like um, uh, getting reacquainted or, or meet cute moment when. Sherlock posed as the waiter interrupting, you know, Watson's proposal, uh, attempt at a proposal. <laughs> and, 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 and that was really fun, and that was really entertaining. Um, but in an episode that was just so full of the sort of, you know, the, the meta stuff of the, the acknowledgement of the theories and, like, you know, Twitter blowing up with Sherlock is back, um, I, 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 I just, you know... When the more Sherlock lives in that space, the more, like, it's funny, the more we can relate to it, because that's quote-unquote our reality, right? But the, but, but the more I think Sherlock loses its own sense of reality um, and credibility to, to, to tell stories. Um, and, and I felt, um, you know, just, you know I, I felt that way also about how the show ended um, this season. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, about the other thing that we haven't talked about yet, the manner of Sherlock's quote-unquote return from the dead. Um, I was kind of agnostic on the issue about how they're going to do it. We know that they were going to do it. We, you knew it was going to have to be outlandish and outrageous. 
um, the idea that it was all essentially a, uh, a smokescreen scam created by British intelligence in order for Sherlock to do some undercover wet work around the world, um, <laughs> knocking out Moriarty's, uh, 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 you know, international criminal enter- enterprise, uh, you know, empire, and taking it down, acting as sort of like a, you know, a, a secret agent 007 type. Um, like, you know, it, it was as good as any. I mean, like, the, the, that got the job done. And I loved the, 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 the conspiracy theories that, uh, and the dramatization of all of that. Um, but all of that kind of set the stage for, uh, you know, talk about 007, like, you know, uh, a very provocative finale. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, now, and, and let's kind of just dive right into it now. So, listeners, if, if you haven't seen Sherlock yet, what are you doing with your life? Quit your job, watch all three episodes, and, and, and come back to this. Uh, in the final hour of Sherlock Series 3, we officially met the sort of big bad of, the, uh, retroactively, the big bad of the whole season, although he was really just sort of the villain of the final hour, uh, whose name was Charles Augustus Magnuson, which is just such a tremendous villain name. Uh played by a man with another tremendous villain named Lars Mikkelsen. Um, And basically, uh, to make a long story short, uh, Sherlock needed to get to this guy because he was essentially a Rupert Murdoch figure, I I think. He he, he worked in media. He had information on everyone. We saw him blackmail uh, a leading politician. The implication was that he had done that for everyone with any power anywhere. Uh, Sherlock went to his incredibly well-appointed mansion where it was thought he had this incredible sort of library of Alexandria, which where he kept hard copies of all this information. Um, and it turned out that, in fact, he had no hard copies. The library was all inside of his head. He apparently has the ability to memorize absolutely everything on the face of the planet. Uh, a, a, a reveal which... I think if any other show had tried it, it would have been so silly. And I think it's a testament to just the filmmaking on Sherlock that the way they handled the reveal, I, I thought was really cool. He just sort of like went into this all white room. It was, it was it was very it was it was it was very exciting. It was a very exciting reveal. Uh, and you know you were, you were sort of wondering, oh my gosh, like what's Sherlock gonna do? I mean, you know he's you know he's 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 finally met his match. I mean, and you know Sherlock is a character we've seen him construct such elaborate ways to solve crimes before, you know, what's he going to come up with? Um, at, w- at which point Sherlock uh, shot the villain in the face. Um, so that was, you know, uh, it, it was certainly not uh, not the ending that I think we were expecting. Um, and uh, Jeff, in, in your piece, uh, you know, you very accurately sort of compared this to, uh, to Man of Steel, which is something that uh, listeners know you and I have strong opinions about. Uh, another recent example of a, uh, a, a character with a lot of history uh, deciding to kill a villain at at the end of um, a movie, which some might argue is out of character. Um, now, uh, Jeff, uh, d- f- first of all, y- y- your piece touches on a whole lot of interesting things that I want to sort of, you know, I'd, I'd love to sort of uh, unpack a little bit. But my first question for you is, uh, what what was your sort of like initial reaction as you were watching the episode when that happened? Like, like were you were you shocked? Were you kind of like, you know, oh wow, I wasn't expecting that? Were you immediately just kind of like, huh, like that's that that was sort of an easy cop out? Like, what was your sort of like, like immediate visceral reaction when Sherlock pulled the trigger? All of the above. <laughs> um, like, I, I think that um, it, it was sort of the the you know the nature of this whole season where. That final hour was really riveting. I mean, and all of the twists and all the reveals um, were were really great. I thought Magnuson was a, was a 
was a, a magnificent villain and my you know one of my big regrets about you know my my big my uh yeah of regrets or problems if you will about that third episode was that like oh it's like oh we're not going to see this guy again because mm-hmm. um, i mean he he was you know he was exceptionally loathsome um and uh, he, i i kind of like the idea of him haunting um the sherlock world um and you know scene for scene um character arcs you know like uh, like very entertaining um but but at the same time it's like uh you get to that finale, and you're, you you sketched it properly. Um, you know, they 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 kind of you know the, the revelation that he had a mind palace too was really great. Like you know, it's like oh, and 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 this is not an original idea. Someone else pointed this out on the internet. I think it was Chuck Wasterman who noted that like, you know, like he he really liked the way that the final he really liked the final episode of the season. And he said that it really represented a sum total of, of all three seasons, and he's correct in this sense. I mean, like, they've really cultivated this sort of high-concept idea of a mind palace um, th- over three seasons. So to, to get to that moment and that reveal, if you're a fan of the show, you really kind of feel like, holy moly. I mean, like, like this guy's completely checkmated Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and you really kind of, like, you, you got that sense. Um but then we get to the matter of the killing, and um, and and you just wonder, you know, we we've seen Sherlock in a lot of tight jams, and he's got this, you know, like computer processor mind. Like, how does he solve this problem? How does he neutralize the threat of Magnuson, um, and 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 save the day and win the day? And um, and and so for his solution of a guy of this guy's caliber, of this kind of, you know, his superpower is his mind. I mean, th- this is the only solution that he could come up with them in the moment. Um, it felt a little easy. It felt it felt cheap. It felt like you know it was. It's clear that the show wanted Sherlock to kill him, and so like I mean that that's why that happened. The, the show just thought that would be interesting, for, for for better or worse. For better in the sense of like I now ha- I do have faith that the show is going to unpack this idea and explore it dramatically next season and and kind of really own this act as like yeah did that shock you well it should shock you like um he did something really provocative here and and we're going to explore it you don't necessarily get that kind of feeling for man of steel right yes um with that said i still think it was out of character i still think that he could have uh you know proven his heroism by doing something else and um that would have been more 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 interesting um, I think that the um, the crisis situation. So we haven't talked about this part of it all. This idea of like Sherlock was in a bind in this moment. Um, y- you could say that maybe this was the only solution that was really available to him in the moment, because he had um, Mycroft and and British intelligence like breathing down his neck. Like um, you know th- they were gonna they were gonna like take Holmes and Watson off the board and and leave Magnuson you know in place and let him do what he was doing because. You know the, the the storytelling establishes that British intelligence, the whole British Empire, nay, the entire Western world, <laughs> terrified of this man. Um, and 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 you know y- you gotta leave him alone. Um, um, and so you know, but but Sherlock wasn't gonna let that stand. This man represents a gross injustice, and he represents a threat to the man. Um, uh, that he loves the most, Watson, um, and, he's, and, and, and his happiness. 
um, because this guy has dirt on uh, on Watson's wife, comma whose name I forget. <laughs> I th- I think it's isn't it isn't it, isn't it Mary Watson Mary. I, I believe <laughs> yeah who's 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 also played by Martin Freeman's real life uh, longtime partner, which sort of adds a nice a, a nice other level of, of meta ness to everything. <laughs> yeah. So um um so I. I think that they set up well his personal motivations, um, and I understand the context of the moment, you know, narrowing the list of options that Sherlock could possibly choose to save the day, um, but I felt that that crisis was bogus, um, um, and it kind of posed and begged a question, I, I, which is a phrase I don't necessarily like, but it begged a question in this moment, which is, you know, well, well, Sherlock like neatly neutralized the threat of Magnuson by assassinating him. Um, uh, unless the show plans on traumatizing why, like killing him is a bad idea, um, and uh, next season, and why th- th- that like it would have been better for him to live, and that's why British intelligence didn't do it sooner. It begs the question. What, what was James Bond doing during this time? Yeah, no, like, no. I, I, why wasn't he taken out and killed earlier? No, you're, like, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it does seem as if, like, like, the people that Magnuson was messing with, certainly one of them could have called up someone with a sniper rifle at some point. And if, right. if that could have solved everything, then, like, why, why go through this, this whole elaborate scheme of hiring this, this detective who's, who, who up till now has specifically been the guy who doesn't necessarily kill, like, like solve things that way? <laughs> right, yeah, I mean... Um, there are, yeah, I mean, like, and even if it wasn't British intelligence, if you, well, maybe this is a version of British intelligence that doesn't do this kind of thing, you know, um, um, but, you know, I think that the story established that he was a threat to other world governments, and Lord knows, like, you know, in, in the world of Sherlock, apparently the CIA has no problem having assassins going around and blowing up, you know, killing people, like <laughs> T. Watson's wife, um, so it's just like, well, it seems like this guy could have been taken out a long time ago. Yeah, he was, he was a great he was a great villain. Don't get me wrong; they love this guy, and 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 and, and they wanted to create an interesting um, um, character idea for Sherlock. Um, I think they could have done. I, I think they could have set it up and done it better. Well, now, now, and uh, now it's interesting though. Um, one thing that struck me uh, in sort of reading your piece, you know, with the comparison of this to Man of Steel. Is you know right before Sherlock uh, pulls the trigger, he says something, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he, he basically says, you know, you're talking to me like I'm, you know, like like I'm uh, like like I'm a good man, but actually I'm a sociopath. Boom. And what's funny is that the show has returned to this idea several times. Th- th- this idea that Sherlock Holmes is a sociopath. Uh, in fact, I think I read an interview after uh, the finale with Stephen Moffat, I believe it was at Vulture, where in, in, in talking about the murder a- at the end, the, 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 the shooting at the end, um, he, he described Sherlock as a sociopath. And he actually even sort of ex- extended it around to say, you know, the people on this show are crazy. I mean, look at, look at you know, John Watson has killed people and he's married to someone. You know, they, they made a big thing in the episode about how even though he didn't know his wife was an assassin, he chose her because he's into that kind of personality. Now, what's interesting to me is that the, 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 there's a lot of throwing around of this term sociopath. And on one hand, I'm not entirely sure that Sherlock qualifies, if only because so much of the show is about the feelings he does have for John Watson. But I, I, I want to ask you, though, I mean, does it change things 
if the show doesn't seem to think Sherlock is a hero, you know, like like it, 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 does that somehow change this act he commits versus uh, you know something like Man of Steel, which spends you know a lot of time with two different father figures talking to him, telling him he has to be a hero. I mean, it, it's it's and and, and I'm, I'm asking this with the understanding that like I, I'm not sure the show is allowed to do that, you know? I mean, like, I'm not sure that you can spend 90% of your season, you know, having having fun with Sherlock, this this wacky hero character, and then at the end sort of wash your hands and say, oh, but, you know, he's he's a sociopath, so he can do whatever he wants to. I mean, that that doesn't... I, I'm not sure entirely where that sits with me, but does that kind of change things for you with this versus Man of Steel? Well, um, as for the idea of Sherlock as a sociopath, um... No, I, I, I don't think it changes much. I, I don't think that, that, that the show depicting Sherlock as a sociopath or maybe more interestingly, Sherlock thinking that he is a sociopath like, like, like um, makes the killing any less out of character. Um, you know, if, if, if this is a sociopathic solution to the problem of evil, why hasn't he done this all along? Right. Uh, you know, um, it surely it, it would have solved a lot of other problems in uh, easier ways. But for some reason, apparently Sherlock decided in previous stories and previous seasons to take the harder road. Right, right. Um, what, because it was more challenging. Um, that said, you know, um, I think that the, the, the writers fell in love with this idea, the season especially, of Sherlock you know, as a sociopath and thinking that he's a sociopath and thought that having him kill someone like this would be an interesting expression of that for the purpose of setting up, I think, the endgame story arc. Hang on, there is a fire truck. <laughs> be careful what you say, Jensen. That's Sherlock killed again. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Mycroft and British intelligence are on their way to you right now. <laughs> right. But I do think it was probably in service of an idea um, of, of setting up this idea of of of, 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 of the endgame arc for Sherlock, which might play out over a couple different seasons. Uh, uh, this idea of of, of of Sherlock sort of defining for himself like what um, a non-sociopathic Sherlock is, a, a human a humanizing of Sherlock, a rehumanizing of Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they were playing with that all throughout um, this season in a way, like how Sherlock finds his humanity and his relationship with 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 Watson, and I and I have a feeling that um, kind of like having him commit this sort of like really cold-blooded act is sort of like you know planting that flag and saying this is this is where we're heading from here, which is you know like maybe toward an arc that, that, that says that Sherlock doesn't want to be that kind of guy that solves problems like that or mm-hmm. um, wants to take that option off the table for him so, himself because of this sort of like, you know, like rounding out of his, of, of his being through this relationship with his friends. So, like I said, I think this is an interesting idea. Um, I have no problem with, with, with them, like, giving us a morally complicated Sherlock. Um, um, but I just think that it kind of like, you know, um, it, they, you know, the, the setup for it was rather clumsy yep. and, and, and it begs, and it begs all these other questions about, you know, cause, cause 
like you know about, about the Man of Steel thing, for example, which we you know you and I have very strong you know differences of opinion on, and and you know we, we, I'm not don't mean to rehash here and now, but like for me in that situation it was funny because what I anticipated was that people would be more forgiving of Sherlock committing this um, this this murder and um and uh i, I kind of wanted to point out like for me like superman killing zod at the end of man of steel makes more sense to me on a pragmatic level on a level of like what am else what else what else am i supposed to do level um than sherlock killing magnuson um but I anticipated that people would be more forgiving of Sherlock, um, and 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 I just kind of basically wanted to call it out and say, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, oh, oh totally. Well, and I mean, I, I I sort of felt like one sort of maybe undercurrent of what you were getting at, and let me know if I was just reading into this was this idea of you know. When Man of Steel came out, there were a lot of gas bags, among them yours truly, who could not get off our high horses about, you know, the 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 quote unquote morality of, of this movie. And you know, you can you you, you, you know you 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 can cut that in any way you want to. Was it that you know we were Superman fans who were upset with what they did? Was it that you know we felt like well, whatever? But at the core, there was this sense of what we're objecting to. Is less so this movie and more some kind, you know, some some larger spiritual thing the movie gets at. When in fact, uh, you know, we we probably just didn't like the movie, you know. And like I, I sort of look back on our conversation that we had a- after Man of Steel, where we both made several fantastic points. But I, I sort of do feel a little bit like, you know, with Sherlock, after it happened, I, I was thinking like, you know, like well. I didn't like that ending so much, but I like the rest of it, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> and and I, I I do sort of I I mean for me I I do sort of feel as if you know with Sherlock I find when I think about the decision he made I don't like it more on just the fact that it was boring you know it's something that and listen I'm I'm the world's biggest Stephen Moffat fanboy but he does do this thing a lot on both Doctor Who and Sherlock where. Uh, the first 99% of a story will be incredibly complicated and the rising action will be just astonishing and you'll wonder, like, good golly, how can the Doctor slash Sherlock possibly get out of this? And then, in the end, sometimes quite literally, a big red button that says solve plot will appear on screen and it'll be hit, it'll, it'll kind of solve everything. And that was, that was sort of how I felt with Sherlock more than anything else was, golly, I, I sort of thought it was going to be more exciting than that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like on a character level, um, comparing the Man of Steel and Sherlock, you know, it's you know Sherlock is is is, is, is as a character um, is is more likely k- to kill a guy to solve a problem than, than Superman, and 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 is of a character that can sort of reconcile that action and rationalize that action compared to Superman, right? Um, um, and yet. Like, in terms of the stories that we were presented, like, um, like I felt like Man of Steel set up its problem and justified its answer better than Sherlock did. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That, 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 that's basically my, my, my fundamental complaint and probably reason for, for, for comparing both of them. But I did wonder, I, 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 I remain intrigued, and this is kind of where... I have a lot of sympathy for the like um, 
you know, Superman shouldn't kill um, uh, uh, um, coalition. <laughs> coalition, right? The the, the 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 Superman like, shouldn't kill lobby. The one of the most powerful lobbies in uh, you know fake in the in the fake internet version of Hollywood. <laughs> I am struck by that yearning. I am struck by like you know comic book folk fanboys who could be the most jaded you know people in the world cynical people in the world the most open to kind of like you know like nihilistic like like violent like shoot 'em up like like heroes out there wanting someone like superman to exist and wanting a story that affirms this idea of of, of an admirable perfect character that can find a solution to any problem without like throwing his own ethics and values under a bus, you mm-hmm. know? And, 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 and I think there's something interesting that here in this day of age that we, we want that and we, and, 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 and we yearn for that and we, we, want, we want stories that affirm that. I don't know what that's about. It's probably a subject for another podcast, but, um, but, I, but like, I, like while I understand why Man of Steel did it, like I, 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 I do recognize the want for for Superman to behave better. Totally. Well, and I mean, you know, and again, uh, I think that one thing you get you get into your piece that I think is interesting is that you know maybe this is the sort of deeper rumblings of a cultural shift happening where you know we've we, we've had so many of these sort of. Uh, morally compromised heroes, some of them very interesting, some of them not interesting. I mean, you know, we, we've just totally run the gamut. You know, is there this sense now in, you know, in some lingering uh, quarters, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it may be kind of a rising sense of do we want a hero that is not that way, a hero that is sort of a little bit more, you know, less less broody, a hero that doesn't kind of immediately... And, uh, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, there's there's so much to kind of... Uh, I almost I, I I almost don't want to dig too deep into this because it is worth you know uh, it it is uh, definitely worth a podcast into itself. But just recently, I, I was reading uh, Mark Wade's uh, new run on Daredevil, which I think he started maybe like a couple of years ago. I'm just kind of getting yeah. into it, and I, I am very struck by this idea of taking a character who. In, in a lot of his sort of most beloved iterations, uh, whether it's Frank Miller in the 80s or uh, the, the more recent, I think it might have been Brian Michael Bendis who did uh-huh. uh, a, a run in, in, in the early 2000s. Daredevil, just you know, one, of the, one of the great sort of gritty street-level characters in the history of comics. And it, at least in the first volume, Mark Wade very explicitly says, we're, we're doing something different now. This is going to be you know, the guy who helps people. This is going to be you know, the kind of bright, fun adventurous, you know, he's he's not going to be, you know, getting into crazy murder duels with bullseye anymore. And I, I sort of, I, I'm intrigued by that, and I wonder if, you know, I, I guess we'll see, is that something that will, you know, advance forward, or is it something that, you know, is more kind of a- along the margins, people sort of thirst for that. I'm, 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 I'm not entirely sure, but it is very intriguing. Um Jeff, uh, it, it, I, I, I'm sure we could do deeper dives into the, into the ethics of, of killing, but uh, what do you say, uh, should we move on to our 2014 uh, preview? Yes, please, let's do that. All right, uh, well, so uh, as our listeners know, the year is 2014. It's technically February right now, but Jeff, we start the year whenever we want to. Uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 the geekly new year actually occurs after Chinese New Year. Um, so we thought we'd just run down some of the things we're excited about. Uh, Jeff, I'll, I'll just kick it off here with a movie that I'm, I'm guessing we're both 
uh, pretty intrigued by uh, Interstellar, which hits in November, is the new film from Christopher Nolan. Uh, at this point, very little is known about it. I, 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 I looked up uh, the latest plot synopsis online, and I think it's literally like, you know, it's some sort of, it's like, you know, the, the back of a Carl Sagan book, like an, an adventure to the edges of human consciousness and, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the limits of human understanding or something like that. But uh, Interstellar does have, we know, an, an a great cast, Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, uh, pretty much everybody who's ever been in a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, and I believe a trailer for this hit about a month ago, uh, which just kind of captured a really sort of interesting mood of, uh, you know, wanting to sort of get back to an, a an age of discovery. So I, I think it's fair to say that it, it's exciting. And of course, as with all things Nolan, what's most exciting about it is we don't know anything at all about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting um, about that trailer. It kind of like thematically really kind of links back to our conversation about Man of Steel and maybe that want for um, a different kind of hero. But um, it, it, it's interesting that, that that piece of communication from that movie to the audience right here, right now, coming out of an age of, you know, cynicism and, um, and, 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 and morally murky, quote-unquote, anti-heroes, um, which I, is a term I don't really like and always use in quotes when I write about it because it's really we're coming out of an age of the villain as protagonist in mm -hmm. his own story, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 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 I and I think that um, so coming out of that kind of kind of funk, if you will, of the early century, kind of a rattled by catastrophe and um, and and recession. I think. I think economics, more than anything, drives the mood about our cultural, like what what, what we want from culture, right? If we're in a recession, we're, we're, chances are we're dreaming dystopia. Mm -hmm. um, like when 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 we're kind of like moving out of it, however tentatively, there is this agitation for it. Well, m maybe things could be better. <laughs> we're going to dystopia again, you know? Like, like maybe I want a hero that doesn't kill people. Like, by higher values and not like just wanting to like you know get through the day or or get what's his yeah. <laughs> I do I do like I do like the idea that that we're we're getting to a point where at least in our dreams we'll allow ourselves to have fun you know like at least right. at least when we go to at least when we go see a movie we'll be like ah, let's let's maybe go see a movie that's not the least pleasant thing we've ever experienced right right right, right. <laughs> so Interstellar like hits this like very aspirational tone of like remember when we were a culture that put people on the moon <laughs> like like wasn't that cool like mm -hmm. don't we want to be those kind of people again let's go <laughs> uh, and you know like being a guy that's you know like self-serving conflict of interest note making a movie called Tomorrowland <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm very interested in in that theme. Um, so in Interstellar is definitely on my radar too, and um, and um, I'll, I, I'm covering that movie for the magazine, and um, and I could tell you that I was on the set, so I know more about this movie than I can actually tell wow. out there um, so far. But was Jeff was was the set in space? Can can you tell us that? Um, uh, no, <laughs> but I can confirm it was in near orbit. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, no, I can't. But I would say that, like, you know, I'm excited for this movie for all the same reasons, too. Like, Christopher Nolan tackling science fiction in an outer space genre way. You know, this, this is a guy who, um, 
who idolizes Stanley Kubrick and, um, and, and for whom 2001 A Space Odyssey is um, a very important film. I'm talking about Christopher Nolan. And so not to say that he's doing his 2001 Space Odyssey, but at the same time, um, an artist who is sort of deeply indebted to a guy like Kubrick kind of tackling a movie that is about journeying into space and is about, you know, you know the, the, the future of mankind. Um, like, I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of images he puts on screen and what kind of story he wants to take us, uh, to tell us. Like, I think that's going to be cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's same here. I mean, and, you know, I, I sort of just feel like, uh, you know, when I think back on... You know his 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 most recent movie obviously was The Dark Knight Rises, and whenever I think back on that movie, I find I think more and more about the non Batman things, and I'm I'm just so struck by the ambition behind it. You know, I I, I think um, uh, after it came out, I, I remember talking to our colleague Jeff Lebrecht about it, and he just pointed out like all the kind of like you know Charles Dickens things that were sort of inside of that movie, and I I was so I was I'm, I was very taken by this idea of. You know, now he's done. He's he's done all his Batman. Now, you know, where does that ambition sort of take him when it, it doesn't even kind of need to be grafted onto this sort of other kind of whole series of, of stories and images? And I'm 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 very very excited for that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you know, the the little bit that I've written so far. I mean, you know, like we want this from Hollywood, don't we? We want like you know. I know that there is this, like, well, man, we could use a lot less science fiction and genre stuff in general. But then, where would this podcast be? Imagine, imagine a fringe universe version of this podcast where we only talk about romantic comedies. We we, we do really deep dives into Christopher Nolan's new romantic comedy. <laughs> right, but but you know, but what this film does represent is. Um, a major filmmaker bringing original material to the screen. And the last time he did it was Inception, which is it's just not a perfect movie, and it has a lot of ponderous dialogue, but, um, but was a really adventurous narrative that captured our imagination in a huge way that entertained uh, on its surface levels and in really sensational ways and had a, a deep thought or two to think about. And so... Um, I'm I'm looking forward to encountering that kind of storyteller again. Uh, that's that's taking a chance on, on 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 some original material and kind of putting all of his creative imagination behind it. What else What else you stoked about in uh, 2014, Jeff? You know, um, um, I uh, in, in in our there, there's a lot uh, actually, and, and and not necessarily within our the confines of our genre. So I won't go into depth about how much the Grand Budapest Hotel by West, from Wes Anderson is my most eagerly anticipated movie of the year, <laughs> or, or or that David Fincher's Gone Girl totally has my attention. Um, so um, and I can't really talk about Captain America because of of, of Disney. So let's just say that um, that I, I'm one movie that I'm interested in that that could be really brilliant. It could be a complete disaster, and about which we really also still know nothing, like Interstellar, um, except for me, um, is, is a Jupiter <laughs> Ascending, the new film from the Wachowski siblings, um, and uh, about which I really know nothing except uh, Jupiter Ascending sounds cool, and Wachowski siblings, which I'm fascinated by, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. J- Jeff, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. So, so th- we just describe what we know about, about Jupiter Ascending. The trailer for it came out, and it stars Channing Tatum as some kind of alien with ears that kind of make him look like Mr. Tumnus from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He takes a, I believe, human girl played by Mila Kunis, um, uh, and it turns out that she might be the queen of the galaxy. And the look of it, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, because I, I, I watched the trailer several times when it came out. The look of it, to me, it's sort of a little bit like like Dune, like, like you know, all the cool illustrations of Dune that you see from when, like, uh, you know, Yodorovsky was working on it in the 70s. And it also kind of looks like um, there, there was a great series of comic books uh, when I was a kid that was all about, like, Star Wars, but, like, thousands of years before the movies. It was all about, you know, this, this really sort of, like, early days of the Jedi. And, it, you know, it was all kind of stuff like, you know, there were, there were spaceships, but they had sails for some reason. And th- th- that sort of is, is, like, the visuals just look really interesting in that kind of unfiltered Wachowski way. Um, and, yeah, yeah I, I was... I, 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 I was struck by the fact that, if nothing else, it didn't look like anything else that I had seen trailers of in a while, which is always kind of right, nice. Right. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. I forget, did, did, where did you stand on, on Cloud Atlas, Jeff? Did, did you like it? Were you, were you question-marked about it? Like, what was your... <laughs> True confession, I still haven't seen it. Oh, man, Jeff, you got to watch Cloud Atlas at some point. I, yeah, I will. I, I, know, I do. I really enjoyed it. It is it is a long film, and there is a lot of makeup in it. I would say that is probably the craziest makeup you'll ever see in a movie is in Cloud Atlas. Um, well, I'm glad you brought th- I'm 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 glad you brought that up because that seems like it'll be something totally original and insane. Because I want to bring up something that is not original in the least, uh, but I'm still sort of excited for it. Uh, the new Planet of the Apes movie, which I believe is called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. This is, of course, the sequel to the Andy Serkis starring reboot, prequel reboot, which happened a few years back. Um, and I, I, this one kind of stuck up on me because, uh, you know, I, 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 I remember enjoying the first one mainly because I was just surprised by the fact that it was so much more about Caesar, about this this ape figure played via you know the usual incredible digital motion capture effects by Andy Serkis. It was more about him than it was about any of the humans, which is a good thing since the humans were pretty boring. Um, and but but I I, I I was so struck by when I saw the trailer for the new movie, uh, I got really excited for it, and I I think it's just because you know this sounds so basic. We live in this era of there being so many franchises and so many sequels, and there are a lot of franchises that I enjoy in theory. You know, like, I, I didn't like the first Thor very much, but I, I still knew I was pretty excited about seeing the new one. But with this one, it's more just like, I want to see that character again, which I know sounds crazy because it's an ape played by digital effects and Andy Serkis, but I almost want to see where where this new movie takes him. Uh, am, I, am I way off base here, Jeff? Because you can, you, you can tell me if I am. <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, one of the things I, I, I hear in that is um, that what we're talking about, the, the first movie here um, was one of the pleasant surprises of the movie year of, like, what was it, 2011, 2012? 2000, 2011, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, th- that was a movie that everyone wrote off, that everyone just thought, why are we remaking this movie? <laughs> um, and, 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 like, 
And then it, it, it took us all by surprise with the quality of its special effects, the performance by Circus, and a really kind of like exciting, engaging, and even kind of thoughtful movie. And I think it engendered a lot of goodwill with the audience. So um, the fact that we kind of want to, you know, re revisit it, you know, like it, your interest does not surprise me. I might not share your passion, <laughs> but I, it does not surprise me. Well, and I, I will say, too, I, I think part of this might be uh, over at the, the website, The Dissolve, they just did sort of like uh, a, 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 a deep dive look at the original Apes series, um, which were, you know, they took this incredible turn where the first two movies are both set in the the planet of the apes as you know spoiler alert it's earth it's the far future charlton heston is, is there and then from there the next three movies escape from the planet of the apes conquest and battle uh, all kind of took place. Then they kind of time traveled back in time, and it became this sort of interesting civil rights allegory. And I, I was sort of struck by the fact that because I I saw those movies and loved them when I was a kid, and I sort of feel like, I mean, as a sort of franchise, as weird as it is, and as totally disparate as the movies are, the Apes have a pretty good track record. And so I, I'm sort of like, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of hoping that they manage to uh, maintain that. Uh, and and you know I I I'm also just a big Jason Clark fan so whatever he's in I'm there for. Uh, what else is so so Jeff uh, moving away from Apes what else are you stoked about this year? Um, two other films I'd like to talk about just real quick um, that I'm really interested in. Um, you know the apocalypse genre, post-apocalypse or apocalyptic event genre has been big in science fiction. Um, uh, movie making over the past several years, and so I can't. So of course, I'm I'm naturally interested in what might be the the biggest apocalyptic science fiction movie um, of the year. I speak, of course, of Noah, Darren uh, yes. Aronofsky's biblical epic, um, starring Russell Crowe as the biggest boat builder of all time, um, <laughs> and uh, and and instructed by God to uh, um, uh, build a a giant life raft for a few select souls because he's going to wipe out the world, God, uh, uh, because he's kind of dissatisfied with awful humanity. And um, Darren Aronofsky, of course, one of the great filmmakers, um, a guy who kind of like attacks his genre and wants to reinvent it um, every time that he, he steps up to, play, to, the, to the plate. And um, I'm really intrigued to see how he's going to tackle Noah and how he's going to bring this, this story to life. Um, so yes, I I, I, I I would you know what is more geeky in our culture than um, religion? Than religion, you know? <laughs> it's 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 Darren Darren Aronofsky's rebooting one of the most popular franchises in the world. Oh man, I, Jeff, I I love your description of Noah as the biggest boat builder of all time. <laughs> um, no, I I am also uh, I'm excited for this. Although I I, I think. I'm 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 excited for this in in a weird way because you know I Darren Aronofsky uh, clearly a a maestro filmmaker I I was I, I I found Black Swan to be one of the more just kind of like uh, almost addictive movie experiences I've had lately I, I just I, I remember being just so enraptured by that movie and it's sort of just bizarre sort of dark psychological thriller aspect um, now conversely I hated The Fountain I hate hate hated The Fountain. I think that is one of the most 
over the top, ridiculously. I, I I hate to use the word pretentious, but if any movie requires it, it it's it's the Fountain, and I, I I suspect Noah might be more in line with that. But I I I I I, I need to see it to find out whether it's to uh, to find out to find out if it is. So I'm 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 very excited in that way. You know, I I like the Fountain. I can't really tell you why. Um, cause I can't really remember it that well. Um, <laughs> clearly, remember, cl- clearly I, Jeff, I, I just remember I liked it. <laughs> clearly Jeff, you, you couldn't get enough of bald space baby, uh, you know, Hugh Jackman or whatever was happening. Now you're reminding me exactly. <laughs> why I liked it. Yeah. What, uh, wait, wait, uh, what was the other movie, Jeff? You had, you had another one you wanted to throw out there? Well, uh, a certain movie that is gracing this week's issue of Entertainment Weekly, I speak of Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars! Which, if, if, if we recorded this podcast as we originally planned last week, I would have said, I'm really anticipating, uh, looking forward to seeing this movie. Um, but since then, I, I have seen this movie. Oh, man! This, this, Jeff, this week's podcast is just Jeff Jensen tells you how cool he is. Like, well, guys, I was on the set of Interstellar, and then I saw Veronica Mars. Then I, 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 read, then I read book six of Game of Thrones. <laughs> look, 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 I'm usually not that cool. Like, so when I have these moments, I want to Oh, man. But, but look, yeah, I mean, so, and I, I don't think it would be wise to to um to talk about it or review it until we all see it mm-hmm. um but um but but I think that this is I mean I, there's going to be a lot that's going to be said about this movie and what it everything that it represents um and I think that as a Veronica Mars fan I can tell you that so much of the movie made me really happy so okay that's 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 good to hear uh I I I I, I still have only seen a couple episodes of Veronica Mars and I had intended to, to catch up on it, and I think now I won't. So maybe maybe after the movie comes out, we'll have a we'll have to have a, a newbie expert chat about it. Um, but certainly anything involving that cast and, and that writer, I'm pretty excited about. Let's move over to, to TV uh, really quickly, Jeff. While we still have some time, uh, I just want to throw out there that the show that I, I think I'm most excited about this year. Uh, less so because of anything to do with what I know about it, and more so just because of the talent behind it, is uh, the FX series The Strain, which is, of course, based on a series of books co-written by the great Guillermo del Toro. And del Toro himself uh, directed and may have also written the uh, the pilot episode. I'm not sure, but he definitely directed it. And, you know, I have, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an unabashed... Uh, super uh, uh, a fan of Del Toro's work. I think I'm still the one guy who's wondering why Pacific Rim didn't get a Best Picture nomination. And w- what intrigues me most of all about him is, you know, he's a guy who it seems like it seems like he really enjoys working within whatever limitation he's given. You know, like uh, I, you know, when he's doing a superhero sequel, he is really excited about that. You know, how can I make this? You know, how can I make Blade 2 the best goddamn Blade movie ever? Then he can turn around on a dime and do something very personal and very eccentric like Pan's Labyrinth and really kind of push that. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I feel as if, you know, with, with, with True Detective on right now, we're getting to this point where, you know, the sort of, 
these really sort of exciting filmmakers are allowed to put their stamp on television in a really interesting way. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited to see what he does with that. All that being said, I just realized that I don't even remember if The Strain is about vampires or werewolves or ghosts or monsters. So <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's some kind of horror series. <laughs> well, I, I think the reason why you're confused is because um, one of the things I think that is, is notable, at least about the books uh, that, that Del Toro wrote with, the, with a writer, I believe his name is Chuck Hogan, um, that is that it's a very different kind of vampire than we've seen. I mean, it's like they're, they're, they're sort of like relentless eating machines. I think they suck your blood with their tongues. They're, they're they're more viral in nature. There's he, he really kind of plays with the archetype and the trope of of, of vampires and 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 their monstrosity um, in 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 the books. Um, so like they kind of blur the lines between vampires and other sorts of creatures. Um, I am I I, I I had to review the book, the first one uh, for 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 EW and, and and I back in I don't know how long ago it was now. And I, I got to tell you, I wasn't I wasn't that blown away by it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm probably because of that, not as excited for this series as you are, except for the promise of Del Toro lending his storytelling, his cinematic storytelling voice to uh, to, to to this to the pilot and to the series. I, that was actually one of my big problems with the book. I didn't really kind of fe- hear, if you will, Del Toro's storytelling voice on the page. Um, I, I, I wanted more Del Toro, whatever that means, um, uh, on the page. And so the promise of getting it on screen is, is it, it makes me more hopeful. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I, I, I am interested in seeing a, maybe a, a different depiction of vampires than we, we, we were used to. I, um, James Hibbert, our colleague James Hibbert, just wrote a piece for the website that's up this week about sort of like vampires as a, as a genre on the wane in the culture. Um, but he kind of singles out, and I kind of agree that maybe the strain kickstarts things, if only because it represents a really kind of different approach to vampires. And what I would say is sort of like this: maybe this movement toward monsters being monsters again. Um, and this, you know, like over the past several years, like vampires have been explored in different ways. But this, I, but this popular sort of notion of vampires as romantic hero or anti-hero or um, misunderstood misfit that kind of working monsters from that kind of more metaphorical point of view um like th- this is a more of a love you know, the, the, the the strain is more lovecraftian that these are more kind of like these sort of like exalted like you know uh monsters of science and and but but maybe, uh, maybe from beyond time like reclaiming the earth if you will and um and, and they're evil and they're indifferent to humanity and um and and, and they're monstrous so um, at least that's what I remember from the book. <laughs> so, um, um, maybe the TV series takes a slightly different tact, but um, but I but I'm, I'm wondering if we're kind of like you know um, entering a, a new era of of, of, of monster I'm, fiction. I'm, Jeff, I'm, I'm so intrigued. I, I I like how the subtext of, of this podcast has become. You know, we've had some antiheroes and we've had like some some less monstrous monsters. Now we're cutting that right off. Like like let's go back to heroes and monsters being monsters again. <laughs> Let heroes be heroes and villains be villains. <laughs> never, never the twain shall meet. Never the twain shall meet. Oh man, uh, are there any are, are there any uh, uh, non Del Toro TV shows that you're stoked about this year, Jeff? Yeah, I, I just like to single out one before we wrap up, which is I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming out, 
um, that I'm excited about. Um, so, but let me just name one, which is it's in our sphere, but it's in the sort of technically nonfiction realm. I'm really excited for this revival of Cosmos, uh, the PBS, you know, like the Carl Sagan sort of landmark science uh, series from the, the 70s, 80s, sort of exploring, you know, science and the, the, the creation of the world and, uh, and, and the nature of the universe, uh, but in a really sort of fanciful narrative way. I, I, the, the, Carl Sagan zipping through the multiverse in his star, you know, snowflake starship um, <laughs> as a kid was the, the, the best science class I ever had as a kid. Um, this new one comes from, of all people, Seth MacFarlane. So right away, <laughs> like, you know, that, that's interesting, but I, I get the sense that he's as, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a very respectful, like, treatment. And, um, and, and names I can't pronounce alert, but of course it's hosted not by Carl Sagan, uh, who is dead. Um, but, uh, <laughs> who is who is who is dead? But 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 also but also he was he was unavailable. That that uh, that was the main problem. He he had some he he had another hosting gig. <laughs> As yet, re- not not yet resurrected per the Ray Kurzweil and uh, <laughs> a, a, a resurrection technology that's not yet online. Um, but um, but Neil. DeGrace or DeGrasse? I don't oh, know. Oh, Neil, Neil, Neil DeGrasse Tyson, I think, is that what Neil DeGrasse Tyson, who I follow on Twitter and enjoy his, his, his gravity bashing very much, um, and, 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 and look forward to kind of seeing his sort of like perspective and his deep intelligence and his sort of like um, very eloquent kind of way of, of, of expressing science and, and scientific concepts, kind of him filling the Carl Sagan role and zipping through the universe in his own version of a snowflake starship. Um, I'm uh, I'm really excited about this and excited to watch it with my kids, um, and uh, and and I'm very intrigued and, and and very interested by this. Now I I have to admit, Jeff, like the the original Cosmos is is, is a total blind spot for me. Was it? Was it sort of like like Planet Earth style, where like each episode, you know, this episode we're talking about black holes, and next episode we're talking about stars, or or is it more sort of like free floating, like we're we'll cover all kinds of wacky concepts in, in this week's episode? I don't like, recall it being marked by the same absolutely awesome nature photography of Planet Earth, which is a great. I love that thing too. Oh my god, Pla- I, I could I have I've rewatched Planet Earth so many times. Oh, I know. Visual series. Um, I, I'm sure that there was original photography. I just, I just remember what I remember most about was just Fagan's intelligence and explaining concepts in a real interesting way. I remember him, expl- you know, postulating the idea of universes within universes. I remember him talking about evolution in a really in- intriguing way um, and um, in a real open way um, about, you know, that uh, allowed for a lot of different perspectives. Um, uh, uh, to, to sort of like participate and engage, um, I was very grateful for that. Um, it, it just captured my imagination for uh, you know the, the the mechanics of our universe, um, and so. Um, but I, I, I remember more of the concepts and bringing concepts to life than like say the, the awesome nature photography of planet Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Should be should be fun, and also this also gives us the opportunity to, to to picture a day in the life of Seth MacFarlane. You know, you're getting script notes on Family Guy. You know, you're doing some recording for American Dad. Uh, d- d- you know, you're uh, you know going to the set of Dads. But then it's time to talk about Cosmos. <laughs> I'm just so I, I just does to, to, to make himself feel feel better about himself <laughs> after sort of like sicking Dads on us. Uh, <laughs> 
Like, I'm giving you I'm giving you Cosmos. Yeah, I'm giving, I'm giving you Cosmos. For, forgive me. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Well, that about wraps us up uh, for this week. But uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at EW Doc Jensen and at Darren Franich. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And thank you, Jeff, for talking. Uh, as always, I'm Darren Franich. I'm not Darren Franich. <laughs> we'll see you next week.